You are listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. I had a friend of mine a few years ago, and when he was dating, he would ask women several questions that seemed kind of stupid, but they revealed a lot. One of the questions that he asked, that, so I'll ask you this question. What's your favorite shoe? My favorite shoe? Yeah. Like the shoe that I own? Yeah. Um, I have these ostrich cowboy boots. Okay. That, um, they've got kind of a, more of a rounded toe, not that not square, square toe. Yeah. Um, traditional rounded toe. They've got a riding heel and they've got scuffs and dents in the back because I would wear uh, spurs with them so the heel is all torn up. And right. those are the boots that I used to ride bulls in when I was a very amateur uh, pretend rodeo cowboy for a few years at college. But I like them. They fit so well and I have so many memories with those boots. Mine are, I had a pair of uh, Solomon hiking that I wore on hikes on four continents and they finally wore out and I, I left them on purpose at a, uh, at a hotel in Spain where I had finished up a hike and I left them there on the counter and it was almost emotional, <laughs> yeah. but they were my favorite boots because they had, they, they had, had been traveled with you for so long. They had traveled with me. I had all these experiences and I had just finished this 500 mile hike in them and they were they were completely shot and so i left them sort of ceremoniously but those are my favorite boots but i thought it was a good question this guy was asking about what was he trying to discover well it was about what does this person value you know so if they said oh i like these you know stiletto heels and they make me look you know all or you know whatever it just it it revealed something there's a deeper meaning the the follow-up question is what's important is why are those favorite yeah but it was it was interesting that Uh, shoes could tell you so much about Oh, and then based on how expensive they are, he knows if he wants to go out on a second date. <laughs> I, guess, and, I guess that's it. I guess that's it. It's going to hurt my wallet. I'm out of here. <laughs> well, maybe second on my list of favorite shoes are these Ugg boots that are sitting on the table. Um, I got a couple when we met, or I got a pair when we met Brian Smith, the founder of Ugg boots, who is our guest today. Brian is an Australian native with a passion for surfing. He left his accounting career behind to pursue his love for both entrepreneurship and surfing in Southern California. In the States, he discovered a gap in the market for comfortable sheepskin boots and introduced them to potential buyers, giving birth to the Ugg brand, which is ubiquitous now. Despite initial rejections, he persisted. He got support from the surf community and made Ugg a sensation on California's campus and beaches and now across the entire country. After 17 years of hard work, Brian sold the Ugg brand to Decker's Outdoor Corporation, leading to its tremendous success in the casual comfort footwear industry with annual sales exceeding a billion dollars. Today, Brian's a renowned speaker, sharing his entrepreneurial journey and captivating audiences worldwide with his storytelling skills. When he's not on tour, he continues to pursue his passion for surfing. I had a great time listening to Brian. Um, We have an extraordinary array of guests on this podcast. And today, I think it's probably our first time uh, having a billion dollar company's founder on the podcast. So stick around, listen to Brian's unique experience. He has a wonderful story. It's highly entertaining. You're going to learn something. I'm Sanger Smith. As always, I'm with my dad, Sean Smith, and this is Decidedly. 
Hey, Brian. Glad to have you. Good hey, Brian. Morning. Thanks so much. It looks like it's going to be a fun time. Yeah, thanks to you. These are my daily uh, to the gym shoes in the wintertime. The Ugg the Ugg boots the Ugg sit boots, on the table. For sure. Yeah. I had no idea how comfortable they were. You know, my sisters owned some pairs back when I was, we were kids. And then met you at, in Washington, D.C. a year ago. Yeah. Like, well, now I got to get a pair, <laughs> you know? Holy shit, they're the most comfortable shoes you've ever had in your life. Yeah. They're pretty comfortable. Yeah, the most common thing I've ever heard is the, 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 the term, oh, my God. And that's when someone puts an Ugg boot on for the first time. It's uh, it's really a set. It is truly incredible. Like, you, you think, obviously, it looks comfortable. Well, no, you got to... Well, maybe you should call them OMGs rather than <laughs> UGGs. Yeah, really, really. What's the most common question you get when you talk to people about your story? The most common thing is where did the name come from? And uh, the answer is that nobody knows. It's been referred to all sheepskin boots. You know, you imagine Australia is full of sheep, right? Every town has a little sheepskin factory to recycle the skins and, and they make bed covers and car seat covers and stuff and they make Ugg boots and and they would spell U-G or U-G-G, U-G-H, U-G-H-S and that. They were all different. They were just referred to as Uggs in in Australia in the mid no mid eighties, I think it was. The the all these guys realised that hey, you could register names because in Australia the law is if you show up first with your ten dollars and a filled out form, you own the trademark. Um, and <laughs> so one guy did, and he wrote to all the other sheepskin manufacturers and said, "You can't use Ugg anymore because I own the name." And they all just laughed him off, and it was unenforceable. However, in, a, in the U.S. and the rest of the world, you have to establish first use and continual use. And I was able to do that when I came here. I realized there were no sheepskin boots in America. And I did a search you know, through the lawyers of all of the, you know, has, has there been a registration for ARG or any use of ARG? And nobody had used the word UGG. And so therefore, I started importing and branding them under UGG. And that began the... You know, that was the trademark that I built the brand around. There's so many parts of your story that are fascinating, Brian. One of them that I was totally unaware of until I heard you talk it through was the origin of the boot. So you kind of alluded to it in Australia. This was a surfing shoe. Tell me about how how you f became aware of these sheepskin boots being used and what they were originally used for before they became popular in America. Okay, well... You have to understand that Americans didn't get sheepskin like Australians do. You know, we're born with sheepskin knowledge, right? And right. you know that, that sheepskin breathes, so it wicks away heat, it wicks away moisture, but in the snow, it insulates, so you can be minus 20 degrees with no socks on, and your feet stay at foot temperature. You can wash them. They're, they're really rough. You cannot rip a sheepskin. and You could try now. You cannot tear a sheepskin so americans thought oh it's delicate it's it's hard it's prickly we need rubber we need sorrels we have mud and slush and all that so there was a huge difference in the awareness of what sheepskin was and so i struck out going to the shoe stores they just said it'll never work here in america and but i knew that i wore them after surfing all the time all my life uh, as I was growing up, so I decided to go back and try and sell through the surf shops. And there were so many California surfers who had been to Australia 
on their surf trips and they'd bought four or five pairs of boots back for all their buddies. So within the surf community, it was pretty well known. And that was the point of least resistance for me to come into the American market. It wasn't like it was ever a surfer boot. It was in Australia, it was a everybody's boot. But yeah. I penetrated the US market by going to the surf shops. And once everybody tried them on and, and, and went surfing and pulled them on after a beat, you know, because the water is really cold in California. And you'd come out with really freezing feet and you put Ugg boots on and in 10 minutes, all the moisture's wicked out and your feet are warm. And so that was the practical entry into the U.S. market. So how did it go starting with the surf shops? I mean, because it was, I've been to some surf shops and they, they don't typically sell a lot of shoes there. How did that, how did that work out? Yeah, not anymore. And they didn't back, they, they sold sandals and stuff. Right. Um, it, it, uh, it was very slow. Um, I, I ended up coming up with one of the most brilliant ideas of the entire 20-year um, you know, growth of the business, right? I, I was just getting, I was getting no credibility. People walk in the store and if, if there were some boots on the shelf, they didn't even ask. They'd ask the manager, what are these? Oh, I don't know. They're just sheepskin boots. So, so I came up with this plan and I, I called it a six-pair stocking plan. And I went to every surf shop. I said, if you will put six pairs on the shelf, I'll give you a free pair to wear. And then the entire business, this was like year four, right, of me beating my head up against this, this, this you know, unknown of why they wouldn't sell. Then when the surf shop owners were wearing them, people would come in and say, hey, what are these things? Oh, they're Ugg boots, man. They are the best. Look, I'm wearing them. They're the most comfortable. And so the, the, the surf shop owner would become this unknown salesman of the product just based on his his you know experience with it. So believe it or not, that was probably it, it, it isn't it simple? Six pairs and you get a free pair. That turned the company around. Now wasn't there a while where you were just having to sell them out of the back of your van or out of the trunk? Yeah, when, when I, yeah when I, we, we we went to the shoe stores initially and they had no interest. And then I realized well all the guys at Malibu, you know, they they seem to think it's a great idea. And so I had a Dodge van with the doors that opened outwards like that. And so I used to go surfing at six in the morning up at Malibu. And uh, by 8.30, you know, I had my coffee and I got a donut. And I, would, I had the van full of product. And I would just open up the doors and be available for business, you know. <laughs> and the word of mouth uh, was so strong. Like they'd be down in Santa Monica and wearing a pair of Ugg boots. Hey, where'd you get those? Oh, there's this guy up at the Malibu parking lot, right? So it was, <laughs> it was the equivalent of a pop-up store, what you call a pop-up store today. I did that 45 years ago in the parking lot at Malibu. So it, it sounds like when you unintentionally created this exclusivity factor, this coolness factor by going with the surfers, right? And and. It, it, you admit that wasn't necessarily intentional that it was a surfer thing. It just, they happened to be the ones to buy it. How yeah, quickly yeah. were you able to capitalize on that the, kind of the coolness factor of it? Cause obviously if I see some surfers doing something, I'm associating that differently than if my grandma's introducing me to Ugg boot. <laughs> Let's hope. Yeah, that's really cool. Great question. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, it was not easy getting into the surf market. Um, I thought I would advertise in surfing magazine and surfer magazine and, and uh, I 
you know, hired models and posed them on the beach with, you know, the, the boots were like major center part of the photograph, you know, and the perfect hair and a perfect sunset. And I ran those ads for one season, you know, the first season, and then the sales were like $6,000. And I thought, God, it should be way, way more than that. So I worked got a summer job. The next year I got better looking models and an, you know, another photographer and did the same thing on, you know, posed models on the beach with the big Ugg boots in the ad. And the sales went to about, you know, $15,000 that second year. And, but it was still disappointing. And the third year, um, actually I decided to give up because during my summer job that year I was working on a golf course and I just said, I, Americans don't get it. I'm just going to, you know, quit the business, get rid of all my stock and, and, you know, focus on something else. And the big storm hit the coast in October that year. Uh, and every, you know, Californians, when that storm, first storm in October hits, they all go, oh, it's winter, right? And so when I got home, there, there was messages on my answer machine from every surf shop saying, oh my God, everyone's been in the store today asking for Ugg boots. And you know, I couldn't even go out of business, right? So I had to <laughs> buy a bunch of more product from Australia and I, you know, I kept it alive. But this year before I advertised, and this is the critical point for anyone who's, who's got a product or a service that they're trying to market, right? So instead of just hiring new models, I was having a beer with a surf shop owner and I was explaining this dilemma, and he said, oh, shut up, Brian. And he calls out the back to these you know, 12, 13-year-old kids who store their surfboards in the shop. And uh, he said, what do you guys think of Uggs? And every one of them just went, oh, those Uggs, man, they're so fake. Have you seen those ads, those models? They can't surf. And like instantly I realized I'm sending the wrong message to my target market, and and when I saw it through their eyes, I was, I was embarrassed that these ads were so bad, right? Totally fake and totally posed. And so as an entrepreneur, you know, you, you, you know, pivot. So I called up a buddy of mine who was running a Scholastic Surf Association in Orange County. And I said, hey, Pete, do you have any young kids who are going to turn pro soon? You know, and he gave me two names, you know, Mike Parsons and Ted Robinson. And so... Instead of hiring a professional photographer, I just took my little Canon Sure Shot, you know, and we went surfing at Black's Beach in La Jolla and Trestles up in San Onofre up in San Clemente. And these walks are a mile long and fantastic surf at the end. And every kid who's read Surfer Magazine knows these, these spots, right? And so I just took photos of Mike and Ted walking along to the beach and back, you know, and I selected two, you know, one photo uh, of them coming back from Black's Beach and an, another one coming back from uh, Trestles. And I ran those ads this next year and the sales went to $220,000. Right? Wow. From, from 15? From 15. Here's why. I had finally figured out that the, you, have to, you never sell your, you never advertise your product, Right. You advertise the features and the benefits and the feelings and the more emotional you can get into it. I knew, I sort of knew that every little kid who reads Surfer Magazine would die to be in this photograph walking along the beach to trestles with Mike Parsons, you know, and, and I, it was right. And it turned out that, that you know, all the cool kids started wearing them to, to high school and then it became 
within a year, like, you know, mom, all the cool kids at school have got a Ugg boots, you know, I want a pair for Christmas. So the the parents had no choice but to buy these Ugg boots. And it, and it started from that peer pressure with that came through the surf market window, but it it hit it hit everybody in high school. Because if you were cool, you had to have a pair of Ugg boots. So, so, and, so what was the what was the tipping point where it moved it from that? Because I, I can see it moving from right. surfing community to the surrounding community, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a a tipping point where it becomes more of a cultural icon, right? It, it, Pe- people who have no association with surfing, who are on a different coast, are wearing these boots. Yeah, it took a long time. Um, from from surfing, I, I then used the same formula to go after the snowboarders because all the young people were picking up snowboarding. Skiing was just on the decline and snowboarding was coming in. So we rode the youth snowboard market for several years. I had a big problem back east because nobody surfs and there's not many mountains. And I finally figured out when I was on a, on a sales trip, I, I asked the sporting goods uh, owner, well, what do the kids do here in the winter? And he says, well, they all play hockey. And, and I'd never, you know, Australian, I'd never even heard of I knew it, what it was, but um, I looked it up and it was bigger than surfing. And uh, oh my God, I've been missing out on this all these years. And uh, it's perfect because you have to wear something to, to the rink. You have to get changed in the skates. You have to unchange. Your mom has to sit in the stands at minus, you know, at 40 degrees, you know. So, that I went after the youth hockey market, and that really took it nationwide. But I'm getting more to your point. Where was the tipping point, right? Um, we were huge in surfing, huge in in uh, snowboarding and ski related stuff. We were huge in in hockey, but there was no real good branding of it. It was just this niche marketing stuff, and I wanted to be in. Um, you know, I, I wanted to have a brand that stood for something. So I came up with casual comfort and I, I wanted to get this out to the, to the whole of America. And the way I thought of doing it was to get on the front page of the lifestyle section in USA Today, which at that time was the, the biggest newspaper on a daily basis. And and so I hired a PR agency and and uh, put together this big press campaign, and I I made an appointment with the uh, the girl Margaret, who was the fashion editor at USA Today in Chicago, and mm-hmm. and we worked our way across to Chicago, and I finally got to uh, the office at five to three. We had a three o'clock appointment, and Margaret comes running out going. Oh my God! You know, I'm I'm so sorry, Brian. I've double booked. I, I I've only got five minutes, and so my presentation was like 45 minutes. So I knew right. I couldn't. Uh, so I just instinctively reached into my briefcase and I pulled out this folder, and it had all these photos of all the celebrities that have been wearing them all through the years. You know, Tom Petty, Neil Young, Sting, Brooke Shields. You know, and and there was one that someone had sent me from London to a tabloid and it was Pamela Anderson in a red swimsuit, you know, the Baywatch swimsuit. Yeah, you know, I, know, I know it well. Yeah. Right. And, and I flicked by that one cause, cause I didn't want her to see that one cause nobody wears Ugg boots that way, but she grabbed it out of my hand 
and said, you know, she wrote down the name of the photographer and the tabloid and said, do you have a press kit? Yep, got to go. You know, she, she was like four minutes. Well, the next day I was going to uh, back to San Diego. So I was in O'Hare Airport and I got my coffee and I got USA Today. I'm expecting nothing, right? Because I, I'd, I'd only seen her 16 hours previously, right? And uh, I, uh, you know, read all the front section of the USA Today and then I read the money section and then I opened up. And here in the middle of the next page is the photo of Pamela Anderson and the following page, the entire page was nothing but the history of sheepskin, the role of sheepskin in footwear, all the shielding applications, all the competitive, you know, like she did this incredible market expose. And by the time I got back to San Diego a couple of hours later, I found out that the phones had not stopped ringing from retailers all over the country going, what are these Ugg boots? I need to get some because I got people in my store asking for Ugg boots, right? And then the other half was all these re all these consumers saying, where's a store in my area? I want to get a pair of Ugg boots. So, so that is the answer to your question of the tipping point. When that ad or the, the, that article ran, then it went, it went out of all these niche markets and now the whole of America was able to see it. And that's when, you know, the, the, you know, the fashion and the women uh, started picking up on it. The, uh, the Hollywood stars, you know, were walking around Hollywood wearing Ugg boots. And, and it was all because of that, that PR push that I did in USA Today. And so, that was always your vision, right? You always wanted to see this be ubiquitous across the country. Yeah. And I'll tell you why. I forgot to mention at the beginning... There were so many disasters that happened, but I hung in there. And I hung in there because I knew that one in two Australians owned some sort of sheepskin footwear, right? And all of the resistance I had for 15 years until that USA Today ad ran, I kept thinking, it's not the product that's bad, it's me. I'm doing something wrong. It should be nationwide, it's not... It's not the product's fault, it's me. And I had to keep analyzing what am I doing wrong? What am I, what am I not getting here? And, and eventually I just stumbled into that PR campaign and, and that really changed the trajectory of the, uh, the entire company. I love hearing that. So many entrepreneurs hold themselves back from successful opportunities because they're unwilling to say, maybe it's me. <laughs> it's That's like right. you could have continued to make little minor tweaks to the product for for a lifetime yeah. only to be unsuccessful. And Absolutely. it's fascinating that you, you basically never did change the product. I mean, I'm sure it's different in some material way from the it's original, the but yeah, yeah, it's, it's, but fundamentally it's the same thing. It, it looks the same. You didn't radically change it. You, you have more, but that, that more, wasn't yeah. why the success let, happened. Let me embellish that. I'm going to do a little plug for myself here, but this is my book, right? The Birth of a Brand. And the yeah. theme of the book is you can't give birth to adults, right? You can't yeah. give birth to adults. And if you look at the stock exchange page on the Wall Street Journal, every single one of those companies started out with someone conceiving the idea, taking the first action, which like the, the first, the birth of UG was buying six pairs of samples, right? And then 
Every business just lies there as an infant and it lies there and you've got to keep feeding it, you know, and changing the diapers and every now and again you get a giggle out of it. But it really is a horrible period when you think, oh, I had this you know, million-dollar idea and nobody's picking it up, right? But that's normal. An infant can't get up and go to college. But eventually it'll start toddling and that's a great stage because, you know, the magazines are writing articles about your product or your service and, you know, the first true believers are telling all their friends and then it gets a little bit of momentum and that slowly gets into the youth phase and that, to me, is the best phase of every business because you've got consistent production, uh, sales and marketing's working, accounting and, and, and over, you know, the admitters working and the uh, sales, you know, just all of, all of the elements of the business are clicking and you can run a $20, $30 million business in that youth phase but if it's a really great product or a really great service, like you know, Agua is a great product, um, you'll hit the teenage years, and and it's just like you remember when, as a teenager, you wanted to be in every party on Saturday night. Well, it's the same in business. You want to be in every major trade show. You want to be in every mass retailer, and you can expense so fast you can kill your business. And I've seen that happen over and over and over again. And I went close to it a couple of times myself. But eventually, the you know the you know accountants put the controls in, and it becomes a mature business. But that theme of of uh, of the infancy is where most entrepreneurs give up because they don't see anything happening. You know, the, it's like, oh, I've had a good idea; it's going to change the world, and they do everything they need to. They're getting engineers or product developers. Finally, it's it's ready to launch, and nobody buys it. Right, and it is so normal, but so many entrepreneurs give up at that point. So I would urge well, them. You know, if you've if you've got an image in USA Today of Pamela Anderson at that point wearing your product, you're going to go from toddler to adult overnight. And so, you know, in, yeah. in terms of the growth of your business, but that in itself probably creates some difficult decisions, uh, supply line. Uh, disruptions and real challenges. I mean, yeah. you're happy for it, but it's going to create challenges. Yeah. Well, my my biggest dis wasn't a disability. disability? <laughs> yeah, it was it comes from debilitated, right? Yeah. I never understood finance. I, I was a chartered accountant, CPA. Never understood finance, and so when I was doing a million, million and a half, you know, we're broke, and so to me, the answer was, oh my God, we got to sell. 2 million next year to get money. And what that did was it had a huge drain on, on cash to, to order the product, bigger uh, trade show booth, bigger everything, bigger warehouse to handle it. And you would end up with 2.5 million in sales and be twice as worse off cash-wise than you were at 1.5 million. And it took me a long time to realize that that you know, I, well, I never realized until like the last couple of years of the company about how the financing worked. And so every time we grew and we pretty much doubled every year, the problems just became horrendous. And I, 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 I wasn't really bankable. The banks for the first 10 years said, oh, it's a fad. You won't be around next year. And the investment bankers, they just saw a huge demand for three months and they weren't interested. And so I was having to get bigger personal investors in to, and I had to buy out the old ones because the new ones didn't want the old ones. It was a nightmare. And 
if I look back on on the entire twenty years that I had it, if I I mean I should have brought a, a finance person in really early, like after year five, but I didn't even know finance people existed at that time. You know, there was no computers. You couldn't do a cash flow forecast on a on a spreadsheet. That didn't exist. I mean, I did them on thirteen bar green, you know, green bar paper. I that's how I did my forecasting. I mean, all, and what, all, what year was what year was that? I started in seventy nine and seventy nine, okay. and I we didn't put computers into the office until nineteen ninety five. Yeah, so it was a long time of not knowing how to forecast what my cash flow was going to be, but. Um, Anyway, that I think you asked me the question. You know what was what was difficult. That was probably the biggest debilitation <laughs> debilitation that I had. Right. Yeah. I, I, w- I would think sort of the finances change um, when your when your sales are increasing like that. Did you yeah. did you have difficulty getting supply? I mean, you, you know, there's only so many sheep running around. I guess. Yeah. There there were some supply issues. Um, there was one period that it was a really, really bad year. Um, I had a partner at this time who, the deal we did, I was a minority of 25%, uh, and uh, he bought a couple of containers of boots, and we, we had a really, really good season. And then at the end of this season, uh, he died in a motocross race, mm. and his wife had never been inside the business. She had no idea what was going on. So I offered to spend a year with her on no salary because I was working on commissions at that time um, and making a lot of money. And I, so I said, look, I'll, I'll try and keep it alive for a year. And during that year, the supplier that I'd been with and started with for you know, 12, 13 years, um, he, I didn't. He never told me directly, but I, in his mind, he realized I, he th- he thought I wasn't going to be able to pull it off, and so it it took me. You know, even though the sales were going fantastic, I was sending all these orders down to him, but I wasn't getting any really good feedback that he was manufacturing. And fast, fast it's forward, a bad sign. Yeah, yeah, it's really. I, I was really uneasy all that. You know, the you know March, April, May, June, July. And it came to a head when we had to sort of show up for this trade show in August, and uh, I hadn't got any indication of when production would be coming. And it turned out at this trade show that all of my boots uh, were in a different booth. A, a windsurfing company had talked him into being the distributor, and my supplier went with him because he had a lot of money, and uh, they put a new label on the back called thugs but it was all all my production that i'd been ordering Uh, basically your product rebranded all all my product with a different cloth label on the back i'd been trying for several months to try and get a big tannery in in melbourne to uh supply boots for me and and we had months of going back and forward and when, when i called him up and said you know look this is what's happened you know this guy's done an end run and I don't have any product. He he basically says, "Well, screw that guy. I'll get all the boots you need." And so, even without a handshake or without a contract or anything, he ramped his, his factory up to maximum production. And he got I sent all the patterns down for the boots, and he distributed them to four or five different manufacturers. And 
And so by uh, September, I was starting to get four or 5,000 pairs uh, every Friday. And, you know, Friday lunchtime, boots delivered, Saturday lunchtime, gone. Next Friday morning, 5,000 pairs, Saturday afternoon, gone. And this happened all the way through. And uh, we, we ended up, you know, staying alive, but we missed out on over a million, you know, nearly $2 million worth of orders that we couldn't deliver because we started so late. And uh, there's a funny sort of situation that happened after that disaster, right? I remember between Christmas and New Year, it's really quiet in the office, right? There's nobody wanting boots delivered or anything. So I was sitting there just thinking how close I'd come to being out of business and thanking God, you know, there's this guy, Gordon, came through with the production. And uh, two really weird things happened. One is that the life insurance company, because when Neil and I did our first deal, we took out insurance policies on each other. Um, the, the insurance company called up and said, hey, we want to get this off the books by December 31, come up to L.A. So I went up with my lawyer and we negotiated a settlement that was – it, it was enough to buy the company 100% back from his, you know, my, my partner's wife. Right, so from she, the estate, yeah. Yeah, she made out like, you know, she, she if I'd have walked away, she'd have had nothing. And now she, she could retire comfortably. And so I now owned the uh, trademark and the business 100%, right? Totally broke, but I, I uh, owned the company. Um, that's a, that's thing. such a relatable decision. Like <laughs> yeah. every, I think every entrepreneur would say, you can choose to lose your company or lose all your money and possessions, but keep your company. I want my company. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it does not matter a, what it's worth. That's it's not a, a math question. It's not a financial know, decision. It, it, it's so emotional. Yeah, yeah. And in my case, practical because it, it I now had a clean slate to go forward. The other weird thing that happened: the company that was the recipient of my manufacturer's boots, right? It was called Thunderwear. They were a windsurfing company. And the brand that they put on the back was Thugs, right? Short of short right. for Thunderwear, Thugs, right? Which I thought was appropriate. Well, <laughs> during this period between Christmas and New Year, the customs brokers called up uh, and they're, they're apologizing because they shipped 4,000 pairs of Thugs to my warehouse and 2,000 pairs of my Ugg boots up to theirs. And they were up in in San Clemente, which is about 35, 40 minutes away. So I called up to, um, you know, talk to the guy and I said, listen, I, I, I really need my boots. You know, as much as I'd love to destroy yours, I, I let, let's swap them out. So I drove to San Clemente and swapped them out. And as I was driving back to San Diego, it's it's like a big 30-mile, you know, open space marine base, right? So you, you when you leave LA, you, you sort of come down and your whole body starts to function again on San Diego time. And right. I, was thinking, I was thinking, how come we couldn't keep boots in our warehouse for 24 hours and the Thugs Warehouse, which was twice, it was much bigger than our warehouse, was floor to ceiling full of sheepskin boots after Christmas. And that's when I realized, oh my God, power of the customer loyalty of every single one of my clients was so powerful that they refused to buy the thugs because they'd all heard on the grapevine 
what had happened and how this guy had sort of gone done an end run around me and they refused to buy the thugs and that's a testament to you know customer service i for years would fly all around the country with my sales reps and each rep had to it's like go to oklahoma or something you know the the rep had to have his 10 best customers lined up for a visit right and and i did that for three years 30 reps you know 10 customers 300 customers a year that i saw year after year after year and when this horrible event happened they just stuck with me. They they realized I got screwed, and they just refused to. That's fortunate. <laughs> they just Doesn't always work that way. Yeah. The bandwagon, you know. So you know we, we're in a world today where we got web pages and landing pages and online Facebook marketing and videos and and really compelling shit. But it all comes back to customer service in the end. If you want a long term business. You've got to look after your customers. And if it's online, you have to follow up and give bennies and just keep in touch. And it is possible to do because I've got a few mentoring clients that, that have fantastic customer retention and repeat sales from these customers too because they just go so far out of their way in the follow-up and to create family and inclusion. And, and it, it's just a brilliant thing to see. So... You know, if you want to keep your brand and your customers, you you must be proactive. It seems like customer loyalty or really a culture of loyalty is declining. You know, I remember when phone companies would give loyalty discounts and now they give discount they give they give discounts for switching. <laughs> yeah, right, right. If you leave your guy, we'll give you a discount. But there's not loyalty discounts. Is that a do you think that's a shift in culture? Or is that companies um, missing the point? No, no. the The interesting thing is that the the rules of marketing haven't changed. The technology's changed, right? And the and the mediums that we uh, sell through and follow up through have changed, and they've become very impersonal. Does not mean that you can't turn that into a personal um, personal contact. Um, it started out, you know, I have this uh, lady who has a lamb leather sash bag. It's a beautiful handbag. I, 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 I joined her because of her customer service. And every bag that went out had a little card in it, thank you, and this. And then a week later, there was another card saying, do you like your bag? Is it heavy? You know, you anyway, it just was this continued thing. And the, the bag is called the sash bag. And so she created this this facebook group of sash sisters and now there's a sash sisterhood right and over the years it's grown powerful enough there's you know twenty thousand, you know ladies in this sash sisterhood so um, my client she once a year she rents out like a, a big hotel ballroom and and says okay the sash bash is what october whatever weekend right and would you believe that hundreds of women from all over the U.S. and Canada fly in for the sash bash, not knowing another person that's in, that's there, and all the only thing they have in common is they own sash bags. That that's a testament customer loyalty. Okay, and she's developed the entire loyal customer base online. There's virtually no outside sales other than online. Do you, do you think that's something that you can you can 
manufacture that that sort of loyalty or do you think it's just organic and it either happens for you or or not i mean there are companies like yours that has great you know great loyalty Uh, yeah i think like harley davidson has great loyalty but there's some that's just it's commoditized how do you make decisions to create that kind of customer loyalty yeah the, the interesting word was manufacture do you manufacture it you you have to have the mentality to want to do it right and then whatever means you use to create the loyalty I, I guess that's sort of manufacturing it but it's with a with a high purpose and if I think it comes back to the founder of the company or the the top executives of the company to want to see your company perceived in a certain way and then you go out of your way to create promotional materials and online messaging and all, all that to to sort of back up that vision. So in a way it's manufactured, yeah, but it's it's manufactured in a way that, that used to happen back before the internet. You know, you, you'd have advertising agencies would manufacture a campaign to try and, you know, promote the image you want. Just remember the brand... The brand is not your trademark registration, right? Your brand is not your logo, and your brand is not the product, right? The brand is what do consumers, especially your customers, what do consumers think of you? And that has to come from a vision and a belief that is, for want of a better word, manufactured and put out there. So it's not... Try it's not dilute, you know. It's, you're not trying to you can't uh, trick people into being loyal to. No, you can't. Yeah. It has to be genuine, and they can tell. They believe me. That doesn't matter if it's reading a newspaper or watching it online. They can tell what's genuine and what's not. Yeah, and you know when I say when I say manufacture, I, I guess the the word would be you know, In, intentional. You know. Influence it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I see a lot of badly manufactured ads. <laughs> They're just, you know, just got to open up Facebook and, and every every third post on my Facebook account, which, you know, I don't seem to have any people I know on my Facebook account. They're all sort of ads and people I don't know. But those ads, boy, they're slick and they're fast. And boy, I, I've listened to some of them for 20, 30 minutes, you know, trying to figure out, well, well, what's the product? What are, what are they selling? <laughs> they, they showed me 50 ways that I have to have this or I'm going to die. But what's the product, you know? And I stick on and watch them just purely out of curiosity what they're offering. And, and that's really bad. You know, that's slick, badly manufactured advertising. But it must work because they're all doing it. Well, like the woman who created the community of people who purchased her bags, how do you create community around the ownership of a product, particularly when that product is uh, at a lower price point, right? Like I can understand why a Harley owner feels a part of the Harley community. Right? So Harley Davidson's created customer loyalty because they have you know, a community of ownership of those Harleys. It, and organize group rides. It's there's there's a barrier to it's entry. Part of your yeah. it's part of your identity if you've spent forty five thousand dollars on a motorcycle and you ride it around all the time, right? Um, that, that's one way of looking at it. But people who wear UGG boots are just so damn proud of the fact that hey, these are UGGs, right? 
Yeah. And they're only 180 bucks, right? But it, it puts them in a club, right? It puts them in a club of I am an UGG wearer and anyone who knows UGGs is going to know that I've got a great product, right? So the sash bag, and, and it, it, if, if, you know, if any, anybody watching, you want to score points and buy one of these for your wife, you'll, you'll be a real hit. It's lamb leather, so it's exactly the same product as what you have on the desk, except there's no fleece on it, right? Lamb leather, um, and it's, it's incredibly ergonomically practical, and it's, it's got a very distinctive look, and the color ranges and the, the palettes and the fringes and all the accessories. It, if you get seen on the street wearing one of these, I, I swear a woman could not spend a day on the street wearing one without being asked five times, hey, where'd you get that bag? Okay. So it's got that similar cachet to So if uh, it's unique enough and, and, yeah, and oh, high very, quality enough, people will be proud. Just don't buy the thug version how do you, of it. Yeah, yeah. How do you think, how do you think it's possible for, for um, service companies to create that type of loyalty? Right, because the answer that you seem to be giving is that, in some way, part of my identity as a customer of UGG is that, you know, is my ownership of this product, right? Yeah. Where, um, my ownership, my identity, my self identity might not be rooted in, um, you know, a service that I pay for or a, you know, where I get my hair cut or something, something that's less Good visible. Question. It's less visible. So if you if you have a product, I'm starting to see how you could create brand loyalty with the product and create community and identity, self-identity with the customer base. If you have a service that you're selling and not a product that cannot be, you know, I people see. are not going to ask me on the street, uh, you know, I see. who did my taxes or who my realtor yeah, was. Yeah, or, that, or It's going to come back to you in the form of testimonials. Uh, and that's, remember when I said you never advertise your product, right? Let's yeah. say you're a CPA and you're wanting to grow your business, right? You don't go out and advertise, you know, all the debits and the credits that you've put together the last <laughs> years, right? It's, it's all about, um, hey, you know, the, somebody's talking and say, hey, I, I had this huge problem with my finances and CPAs came in. And they made it so easy for and, and and God, I'm so glad that they came because it saved my company, right? That's that's how you advertise your service type business, right? And if you have a if you've invented a software that saves time, like a, a new spreadsheet that saves an incredible amount of time, you don't put a thing on 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 your your web page with you know the photos of engineers working on computers and copies of the packaging of the software you don't do any of that you have some guy waist deep in the in the bahamas in in, in you know in the mediterranean somewhere it doesn't matter where drinking a martini with all the time he's saved from using your software so there's a subtle shift into how you you advertise a service rather than a product but they're both quite you know they're both they have the same marketing principles behind them what do you think needs to happen though for for that sense of identity and pride in the the client or the customer related to a service right you know when i wear my ugg boots i'm proud of my ugg boots when yep. people see me in my ugg boots they ask me about them if it's uh software on my computer that 
really helps me a lot and I'm really happy about it. I, I never get, I never have that pride invoked. I never have people question, hey, where'd you get that weird new, you know, editing software? Um, yeah, it doesn't come tough. up. <laughs> it's just the nature of the uh, product itself. Yeah. But if you're at a convention and uh, you were demonstrating somehow you were getting five more times appointments than anybody else and people started noticing going, oh, shit, what are you doing? Then you'd have no problem, tell, problem telling everybody. Well, that's a good point. I guess there are some services that that um, I can identify in my own life that I am proud of, uh, that I brag about. It's yeah. usually when I know that the other person doesn't have it or can't get it. Like gotcha. what? Well, like if, uh, if there's something that I'm using in my business and I know based on the way one of my other friends who's in a similar industry, the way his business is set up, uh -oh. I know that he's either restricted from using it or... It's not practical or, you know, he probably wouldn't have spent the money. I'll be like, oh, I'm using this. You're probably not using it. You probably can't use it. Well, da 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 da, -da. <laughs> I go, let me tell you how good it is. And then those are the ones I'm most you, proud of. You, you do that. I did that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly right. You're right on point there. Yeah. So I have a final question for you. What would you say would be the, the single most important decision-making tip you would provide to business owners and leaders? Wow. I'll give you a piece of philosophy from my book. I've got lots of philosophy in it, but one of the best one is that nearly always your most disappointing disappointments will become your greatest blessings, yeah. right? And every time I've had something that just turned out to be a disaster, within months or weeks, something did, did change it all the time, but you would look back and go, God, thank God that happened. And every time I'm on stage, I, I bring up this point and I, I ask the audience, you know, in the last year, did something happen that at the time you thought it was a disaster and now you look back and think, so God, you know, thank God that happened? I would say every single audience, 80% of the people put their hand up. So that to me is one of the great pieces of philosophy from the book. Yeah, I like right. it. See, so you have it. Well done. Yeah, we've got it here in studio. Thank you so much for being here, Brian. I uh, appreciate it. Uh, it was great having you on and I know I learned a lot that I'm going to take away and implement. Yeah, thank you, Brian. Thank you so much. My pleasure. These were great questions and, and good luck to your audience. My takeaway was around the decision to create loyalty and that it doesn't just happen organically and that it's purposeful and that to do that, you've got to understand what the customer thinks of you. You've got to understand how you make them feel and, and really understand who that customer is, you know, and he, he gave the example of the pictures that he took and, and how some of the surfers felt like it wasn't authentic. And once he did that, got an authentic connection that it really took off. And so I really liked that purposeful creation of loyalty vision. Yeah. Mine is in the same vein. What I took away from listening to Brian is that you can create not only customer loyalty, but a community of your customer base, regardless of what you're selling. If you're selling products, maybe it may be a little bit easier than if you're selling a service, but it doesn't have to be. Um, it doesn't have to be off limits for you if you're in a service-based business to create customer loyalty and create a community. After all, they do share something in common and all it takes for a community to exist is to be centered around one common shared interest. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of Decidedly. Make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com 
and on Facebook and Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly Podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.